Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and I am part of the teaching team, and as always, it's my great honor to be here with all you Bible-loving ladies. It's one of my favorite places on earth to be. And this week, we're going to continue this study in James. You'll be glad to know that we're not going to spend a lot of time speaking about the tongue. Yeah. I warned you six weeks ago when I was here last that you were going to get a lot about your speech over the next few weeks. Was I right? Yes. Yes. You know, I think you all deserve a certificate of accomplishment. You have probably studied more about your speech than anybody should have to in life. It tells me a lot about this audience. I think God had something for us to know. You know, we were here with Deb at the very end of that. She took us back to Proverbs, and we were reminded that our speech is powerful. Like, it can encourage, it can be, give people hope, it can even bring people to Christ. It can lead them to Christ. In fact, I think that might be one of the only reasons he gave us speech, is that we could lead others to Christ with it. But, you know, it can also be divisive. It can tear apart relationships. It can cause lack of unity and no peace. It can be so hard and so painful when it's not used to honor God. You know, last week, Lynn was with us, and she opened up James 4, and we saw these early believers doing something even more with their speech. They were at war with each other. And and when you know that you're at war with each other, you're at war ultimately with God. And that's where we saw them. She reminded us, though, that if we're BFFs with the world, we're enemies of God. That was really hard for me to hear. I don't want to know that. You know, she reminded us also that if we humble ourselves and we admit our need for our Heavenly Father, we get to be the BFF of the God of the universe. That should be encouraging. He wants to love and care for us. But guess what? I'm not here to talk much about the tongue today. That's not even going to be a whole part of it. It's not going to be about being an enemy of God. It's going to be about something less weighty, the will of God. Note of sarcasm. That's a big topic, isn't it? You know, we're going to be talking specifically about living outside the will of God, which is where I think we find these early believers in James. They're not living inside the will of God. And as um, you may not know this part about me, I actually have a PhD in this subject. I got it from the School of Hard Knocks. (laughs) Yeah. Did you know that that the mascot for the School of Hard Knocks is a sledgehammer? Because that's how I've gotten most of these lessons here. And some of you, I'm pretty sure, are alumni. I know it. And you know that those lessons you learn at the School of Hard Knocks, you rarely forget them. In fact, you probably have scars so deep you're reminded of them. What to do, what not to do. You know, there's been a lot of books written about the topic of God's will. You just go out there on that internet, and there are lists and lists of them. Some of you actually claim to have a formula you follow. Like, the steps you follow. There was one that said, God's will, seven steps you need to take. Sounds like somebody's got it figured out. Kudos to them, because guess what? I'm not sure it's all correct. I'm pretty sure they've missed a few steps in there. But they seem to know what they think they know what they're talking about. And there are some other titles I found, too, like, Can I Know God's Will? That one made me stop and think, well, yeah. I think we can. I don't think he asks us to seek and search something that we're not going to get to find. 
He didn't say, seek and discern unicorns or fairy dust, did he? He said, seek and discern my will. That means he's going to reveal it to us when we do that. Another one was decisions, decisions. Hmm. The best part of that book was the cover. Someone's flipping a coin. Seriously, that's a book about seeking God's will. Please don't flip a coin. Please don't do that. But my favorite was a little jewel I read. The title was, I didn't read the book. I just read the title. Just do something. It says it's a liberating approach to finding God's will. Finally, we don't have to be burdened with this anymore. It says on there, after that, it says, how to make decisions without dreams, without visions, fleeces, don't that is, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, goodness knows we don't need those, casting lots, liver shivers, writings in the sky, etc. I was so offended that they put Bible verses and liver shivers in the same list of instructions. I mean, when I look at that, I can tell you that I, I probably tried a couple. I know I've tried Bible verses. I've done the open door thing. I've found more closed doors and I tried open windows. That one didn't work for me either. But I can tell you what, I've never tried a liver shiver. And if I did, I'd probably go to my doctor for it. What is that? But that's what they're telling you, that all these things are how you find God's will. I can honestly say that there may or may not be some good information in there. I'm not recommending these books. I'm not saying don't read them. But I'm saying, be careful what you read, because I know this, they were written by humans. And when a book is written by humans, you can bet that there's going to be some information in there that's correct, and there's going to be some information that's not correct. And you're going to have to know how to discern that. But I know where we can go to find the true will of God, and it's right in his word. That's where we're going to find it. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt so many things about God that tells us about his will for us right in his own word. Things like uh, he has a plan and a purpose for us. I mean, don't you feel like the entire Bible is about God's plan and purpose for his people? It's the entire Bible. We also know that we can, we can trust him because we know he's wise. It's all throughout scripture. He's wise, he's all-knowing. So we can trust that he knows what should happen and when it should happen. He knows when we should go. He knows when we should stop, speed up, slow down, back up, whatever it is. He already knows that. We search his scripture, and we also know he's a God of love, don't we? We know that he's perfect. We know that he's holy. We know that he isn't able to sin. That tells me that I can trust him with my life because he can only desire his very best for us. It's not in his nature to desire anything but his very best for us, whatever that looks like. And when we look at Psalm 33, 11, we get just a little bit more information about God's will. It's on your verse sheet. It says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. That tells me that God's word, where we're going to seek and to find and know his will, it's eternal and it never fails. Why would I go to a book about liver shivers? I mean, it's right here. And then it tells us that the will of the Father comes from his heart. You know, Warren Wearsby tells us this. He says, the will of our heavenly Father comes from his heart, as an, and it is an expression of his love. 
That tells me I can trust him with everything in my life. And this week, when we looked at James 4, 11 through 17, we found three ways that we can trust him. We can trust his judgment, we can trust his plans, and we can trust his will when we seek and discern it. So if you haven't already done so, I want you to open up your Bibles. I want you to go to James 4 and follow along. I'm just going to read verses 11 and 12. It says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's very obvious that we're going to be talking about trusting our Heavenly Father's judgment. Trusting his judgment. Apparently, his early believers were, were still having some problems with their tongue at this point, right? Their speech. It says they're speaking evil of each other. We don't know exactly what that is, but he says speaking evil, so we can assume it's not edifying or encouraging at all. Some versions of your scriptures will call it slander. Some call it defaming or defamation. But the definition of slander is to utter or speak words that are false or malicious about someone else. So... We're all scholars on what God says, what God's word says about speech, right? So we can make an assumption right here that what they're doing was not God-approved speech. And when they're doing this, it says they're also judging each other. They're accusing each other. They're being judgmental. And he goes on to say that by doing so, they've set themselves up as judge and jury and not trusting God in the matters of judgment. Now, what he is not saying here is that we shouldn't confront others in their sin because we know that Scripture addresses that very thing. It's, it's throughout Scripture. Look at Matthew 7, 30, uh, 7 uh, verses 3 through 5 in your verse sheet. It says, why do, you why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a text, and a tax collector. And Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, Brother, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So first we see how do we deal with confronting others in their sin? Well, first of all, we deal with our own sin. Because how can we expect to help somebody with theirs if we're burdened with our own sins? And when we do that, when we take our sin and we're, it's revealed to us and we confess it and we repent of it, it humbles us. And that's the proper place to be when we're going to help somebody else that's struggling with their own sin. Secondly, it says to go to them and address it, just the two of you. Don't make a big accusation to everybody else around you. Go to them. Talk to them. If that doesn't work, take one or two people with you. If that doesn't work, seek some spiritual leadership through your church to help you with it. And thirdly, I think we we're supposed to restore them gently. 
restore their relationship. And operative word here is gently. Gently, with the spirit of gentleness, restoring others to a right relationship with God should be your top priority when you're confronting someone else in their sin. It shouldn't be that you're trying to prove that they're wrong and you're right. It shouldn't be that you just got to be heard and you want to elevate yourself over them and make them think that you've never sinned or make them feel shamed about their sin. And it clearly doesn't say that you should blast off a phone call or a text to all your besties and just start telling them all about the things that have been going on. No, none of that is going to restore anything. And, and it certainly doesn't mean that even those subtle or those little sarcastic digs that you might make to others about that person shouldn't be happening because none of those are going to work to do what's the most important thing, and that's restore them into a right relationship with God. Instead, when confronting sin, do what God has laid out in his word. Go there and find out what he tells you to do and leave the rest up to him. James makes it clear that there was this critical and judgmental spirit among the early Jewish believers. And, and it says that, they, and, and like them, we are not called to be judges. We have one true judge. And, and God has showed us through just the example of his son how we should deal with sin. You know, look at 1 Peter 4, 8 on your verse sheet. It says, above all, keeping, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus didn't come down to be with us on earth, to point fingers at us and say, look what you have done. Look at the mess you have made. He didn't condemn us and shame us. He didn't do any of that. His top priority was restoring all of us to a right relationship with his father. And he loved us so much, he died to do it. That's what we should use as our example when we're going to someone who's having trouble with sin. Top priority, restoring them to Christ. Don't do it in haste. Be well prepared, well prayed up. And trust that your heavenly father who is patient and understanding, he's, he can, you can trust what he does with whatever you do in that judgment, that, that confront, confronting them there is sin. Let him take up the matter once you've done what you've been called to do. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's going to do it in his perfect will, perfect timing, and in a perfect way. We can trust that. Trust your heavenly father. He knows best. We can leave matters of judgment to him and have complete confidence, whether we get to see it come to an end or not, that he's going to deal with it in his perfect way and his perfect timing. Let's go on. I want to read um, the next few verses, starting at 13. I'm going to read 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So James is admonishing these early believers for not trusting God's plans in their lives. And in this situation, it's, it's 
clear that he's most likely addressing some wealthy merchants that are probably part of his audience. Um, he'd probably overheard them talking about their business deals and their business travels and all the stuff they had going on in their lives. We don't know that for sure, but what's evident, whoever he's talking to, these early believers were showing no evidence that they were seeking God's will when they made their plans. And it's also very evident that they were measuring the success by their accomplishments. It's a really dangerous thing to do, but I think we're all guilty of it at times. You know, it's hard not to do that in this world, isn't it? Because this whole world is accomplishment or production-based. You know, when I, when I first quit working full-time to, to stay home with kids and, and begin teaching his word, I put so much into, I didn't feel like I was being productive. When I was being the most productive I had ever been, don't go by your standards. Judge your success and your accomplishments by God's standards. That's the most important part, knowing and obeying his word. Look at Joshua 1.8 on your verse sheet. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For you will, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And Psalm 1 says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaves do not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. God's standards, God's standards. Measuring our success by our accomplishments or any other human standard by that, for that matter, it's gonna lead to disappointment and failure. James gives us three main reasons why that happens in here. He says it's because of the complexity, the uncertainty, and the brevity of life. First, he says life is complex. I think we know this, don't we? Life is complicated. And I, and I know some of you know this, the longer you live, the more complicated it gets because it has so many more moving pieces to it. And <clears throat> you get all these moving pieces and, and you start thinking about all the things that could possibly go wrong at any given moment to make your plans fail. I think if we actually stopped and thought about it and took the time to do that, it would probably cause us to stand in the corner paralyzed with fear because there are so many moving parts to everything we do, then so many things that could go wrong that we could literally lose our mind doing that. I'm sure all of you can recall a time when your plans didn't work out quite well, not quite what you were planning. We all have those stories. Um, it was made, this all was made very abundantly clear to me this year. Now my husband and I decided last year we needed to be more purposeful about getting our adult children together. We're together at holidays, and we thought, that's not enough. We want some time away from the stress of the holidays and just be with our adult children. So we decided we're going to start doing trips, vacations with them more purposely. Complications, okay? We have four children with some significant others in the, mixed into this. So we decided to go head on, though. So we decided this is what we'll do. Every, every child in our family is going to make a presentation about a place they want to go. We had, some, we had some PowerPoints. We had some goodie bags. It was really kind of fun. We all got together. They all made their presentations. Some were much better than others. And we voted. And we decided whatever we voted, that's where we're going. And then all they would have to do is show up with something to wear. That's it. And we would handle everything else. So we did. March, we had our destination. We had our date. 
we're well on the way. They're excited. Everybody's excited about it. Sounds fun. I jump into it. I start booking flights for nine people from all over the United States to one place. I find the, just the right Airbnb with the right number of beds, bathrooms, bath, bedrooms, and all the amenities that you'd want to have while you're there. I found uh, cars that would seat all nine people and all their stuff. And by mid-May, I was done. I was accomplished. I had done it. That weighty task was behind me. We were going to sail into a vacation with our family set for Thanksgiving holiday. So we uh, flashed forward two weeks. I still didn't know I was teaching this lesson, but God did. And uh, we get the, we, our kids come home and our youngest son and his wife announce, we're pregnant. Yay. And I'm like, so excited and I can't wait. And then they find out from their doctor, we can't travel on their vacation. I'm like, okay, well, I can take that. It's no big deal. They're making me a grandma. They can't do anything wrong. Okay, so we're good. We're good with that. So we moved on and made a few little adjustments, kept moving, flash forward to the third week of September. And my older son calls me and he's very, you could tell he's really worried and he's anxious. And he says, mom, you know, we have this new puppy and with this traveling, we're worried about boarding too long. And if we are just not going to be able to go, if you can't change our flights. Okay. I've got this, remember? I'm well accomplished in travel. So I got on the phone that night, this wonderful customer representative with American Airlines, her name is Daphne, we're like this. We managed to accomplish what we thought would be really hard and it was perfect and my daughter-in-law thinks I'm amazing and it was wonderful. Again, accomplished, I did it. So God says, okay, you're teaching this lesson and you know that now, we're gonna kick this up, we're gonna kick it up the heat a little bit. Let's see how you do. Two days later, I'm standing in front of the television. I don't do this very much because I don't like news, but I'm watching the weather because it's a big hurricane hitting Southwest Florida. And I'm watching as the weatherman says, it looks like Hurricane Ian is gonna make a more Southern approach and it's gonna hit specifically Fort Myers, Cape Coral, Sanibel Island. Guess where we're going? Yeah, Sanibel Island is not there anymore. Yeah, it's basically gone. Now I thought my life was complicated, but God reminded me, look at that picture on the television. Those people's lives are so complicated right now. It changed everything. And I was reminded that day of Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans of the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God not only wanted to teach me that Life is not just complicated, Vanita. You've gone past that part. It's uncertain. It's very uncertain. And I spent those next few days, I'm, not, I'm confessing right here, I grumbled. I grumbled a little bit about, I'm back at square one. Where are we gonna go? Everybody's got the time off. We gotta figure this out. And God reminded me every day as I watched that death toll rise, the brevity of life as well. He had so many things he wanted to teach me. Moving forward from that, I am a whole lot less confident in my human understanding and I'm a whole lot more confident in what he knows and trusting him more with our plans for our family time together. I have come to a place where wherever that ends up being, it's exactly where he wants us. It's gonna be his best for us and it's gonna be amazing because it's good. 
James tells us that it is foolish to make plans for our future without considering the will of God because because the complexity, the uncertainty, the brevity of life, there's absolutely no way that we can know all that lies ahead of us. There's no way, but there's someone that does. It's our heavenly father. He knows best because he's all-knowing. Remember, it's all over his word. We can trust his plans. He has supreme power. He has supreme control of the past, present, and the future. Ask him for wisdom. Ask him for discernment and protection. And then make your plans for the future. He doesn't say don't make plans. He says, but do that first. And then move forward making those plans with this complete understanding that we live in our father's world And it is his father's world, and he is in control of it. Our father knows best. He alone knows every detail of every minute, and he knows how it's going to affect your future. Seek his wisdom and discernment when making your plans. Trust what he has for you. Verse 17 wraps up these last four chapters of James with a very stern warning. It's a very short uh, sentence, very powerful one. He's going to warn us about trusting God's will. So whoever knows the right thing to do, it says, and fails to do it, it's sin. Pure and simple, it's sin. He starts off chapter 4 talking about these Jewish believers warring at war with each other and ultimately at war with God, and he's going to end this chapter talking about the will of God. They're at war against the will of God here. You know, we spend so much time um, talking about the will of God. What is God's will for me? We need to be reminded that it is a sin to seek it, to sin to seek God's will and know it and not do it. That's an important part that we need to know. We spend this time fretting. Oh gosh, what is God saying I'm supposed to do? What, what's the next step I'm going to take? I worry, we worry about being in his will. I've got to be in his will. I want to, every small detail, every small thing that comes up or big thing, every single decision in those big things, wondering when is he going to give me this information I need? I think we spend so much time doing this, fretting over the stuff we don't know, we miss All the things he's already revealed to us in his word. There's so much in his word that he's already revealed. And I get it. God's will is confusing. It's a confusing topic. It can be overwhelming. And I want to spend just a few minutes talking about just a little bit of it so maybe uh, you can understand it just a little bit better. We're going to take just a tiny little deep dive. It's not going to be scuba gear. It's going to be snorkel. You could, trust me, there are, like pages of books about this. So we could talk all year about it. But it helps us to understand that there are two very clear and very different term meanings to the term will of God found in his scripture. And knowing these two meanings are going to help when you're trying to discern his will in, in whatever it is you're trying to do. First of all, we have God's sovereign will. Okay, that's one of those, one of them. It's the best illustration I can give you of that we find with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember right before his crucifixion, it's in Matthew 26. He says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Okay, we're talking about God's sovereign will here and Jesus knew that. See, in this instance, God's sovereign will was a plan that God had put in place 
It was going to happen at a certain time and happen in a certain way and a certain place in time. The sovereign will of God was his son was going to die for our sins. That had been set, had been decreed. There was not going to be any change to that. So basically Jesus is saying here, here's my request, Father, but I trust you to do what is best. It's like it almost didn't hurt to ask, I'm just going to make this request. So the first meaning of the will of God is God's sovereign control over all things. It cannot be broken. It will always come to pass in his perfect way and his perfect timing. The other meaning of the will of God found in scripture is uh, what some call his moral will. There are some commentaries that call it his will of command. Basically, though, we're going to be talking about moral will today. And his moral will is what he commands us to do. It's those things we find in his scripture that he desires all of us to do and how we should live. This is the will of God that we can obey and honor him, or we can disobey and dishonor him. Now, I put a couple examples on your verse sheet. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this, For this is the will of God, here it is, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's very clear. There's one thing that we know is right in God's will. It's very easy to identify there. He commands holiness and sexual purity. So guess what? Don't ask if you don't want to know. And, don't, and if you're going to know, you're going to need to do it. So don't ask for his will because that might be what he tells you. Look at first, you've got to be willing to obey whatever you ask about his will. That's part of his will. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the, uh, the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Here we go. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, very clear. Very clear. God's will for us is that we rejoice always. His will for us is that we pray without ceasing. His will is that we give thanks in the good times and the bad times, no matter what's going on. Those are just a couple of scriptures. The scripture is filled with God's will, God's moral will. But these two clearly fall in God's moral will because they're commands that we can obey. And when we do, we're living in God's will. If we don't obey, we're living outside God's will, and it's sin, correct? Two very different meanings, sovereign will, moral will. Sovereign will always comes to pass. It's those things that God has put destined, it's destined to happen. It's going to happen in his perfect way, his perfect timing. The other, the will of, the moral will. The part of God that he, the part of God's will that he gives us specific ways to live within his will. How we should live our lives. We can obey that. We could disobey that. Both are true, but they're very important when you're trying to seek and know God's will. This, of course, is just a tip of what's recorded about God's will in his word. But it's all stuff that you can use when you're trying to find out the big stuff. You've got big situations. So when you're asking God to give you the details for that big thing in your life, you have to understand that you may not know. He may never reveal that to you, and, and that should be okay. But that may be part of his sovereign will. But he does give you lots of things in his moral will that will show you what you can do to take that next step 
when you're waiting to know what to do next. And what you find in Scripture may not say things like, Vanita, don't make plans for a family vacation in Southwest Florida over Thanksgiving. This is going to be a large, devastating hurricane that's going to wipe it all out three weeks before you leave, or a few weeks before you leave. It may not be in Scripture, but guess what? There are lots of things he tells me in his Scripture that I know are right in his will, like, how about this one, rejoice always. Yeah, I could do that. How about pray without ceasing? Absolutely. Give thanks in all circumstances, the good and the bad. All of these things put you right in God's will. And that's just to name a few. The same goes for each of you. The things that you're seeking may not be explicitly written in Scripture. Should I marry this guy? Should I sell my house? Should I buy this car? Which car is best for me? Should I take a vacation? Should I not take a vacation? Those things may not be in there. Honestly, there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of things that aren't going to be in there that you're going to want to know. But when you seek God's will and his word, your mind is being renewed. And as your mind is being renewed, your desires begin to align align with God's desires. And when your desires begin to align with God's desires, you begin to assess every situation you're going through more like the mind of Christ. I mean, ultimately, that's what he wants us to do. And that's when we begin to discern God's will for our lives in every situation. Doing that and taking those steps, it helps us apply scripture to any situation, any circumstance we're going through. You know, maybe he's trying to teach us there are times we won't receive specific information. Maybe... We're not going to get that information for a while. We're going to have to wait. But he maybe wants us to know that his word is filled with things and his moral will that we can definitely do. We can obey as we seek his will about that very specific thing. Which, by the way, when you're doing that, guess where you are? You're right in the middle of God's will. Smack dab in the middle of God's will, seeking his word, finding his will for whatever's going on. You know, I have this dear friend. Her name is Lita. We've been friends for over 30 years. She's near and dear to me. And she's been on a really hard journey over the last couple of years. And because we're so close, I've walked through much of this with her. Um, Her husband, Walt, precious, precious man, passed away from COVID the afternoon of Christmas Day, 2020. It's a day that's etched in my mind as well, I'm sure, in her heart and mind and will be forever. And since that time, she has had to make some very, very weighty and very scary decisions. You know, things like, um, should I sell my home of 25 years or not? Should I sell Walt's possessions or not? Should I go back into the workforce or not? Or should I, should I move to another city and be closer to my family? And all these decisions that had so much weight on them, that you would have to find new friends if she moved, a new church, all of these things, making these really scary decisions without Walt by her side. And it was hard. It was hard. And I can tell you, as I walk through this with her, I've learned so much about God's will. She's still making decisions. We were on the phone last night talking about something she had to do. But she reminded me, she says, I don't always know the exact details of the next step I need to take. And she said, that's okay. I think that's when God wants me to wait. But she does know this, that when I'm waiting, I can do these things. I can dive into his word. I can abide in him. And I can, and I can know what baby steps to take 
while I'm waiting for the big things to be revealed to me. For instance, she said, I can live a life of gratitude even when it's dark and really scary. She said, I can, I can spend time listening to his voice. She said, I've learned to do that so much better over the last two years. She said, I can show him, I can show him love by serving others that are going through similar things or tough times because I've learned so much on my journey that I can share with them. And I honor him when I do that. And she said, you know what? Sometimes I just have to trust him that he loves me and he's going to try to grow me in my faith. And that's what we're here for. These are all things I've watched her do over the last two years. And I have grown as well. You know, we may not always know what giant step to take. That may not be revealed immediately. God is so gracious. He so graciously is going to give you baby steps in his word that you're going to find in his word. And there are baby steps that you can take while you're waiting. For instance, spend time in his word. You're doing it. Keep doing it. Spend time in prayer. Ask him to reveal areas in you that are dishonoring him and work on them. He's going to reveal stuff to you. Love others, even without demanding your own way or your own rights. Just keep loving them and honoring God in the way that you do it. Rejoice always. Show him love by serving others. And that, ladies, is the tip of the iceberg. His word is filled with his will. Guess what? You're going to start taking these baby steps that you are certain are in his will. And before you know it, you're going to find yourself in that sweet spot of God's will. And you won't even have the answers to that big thing that's looming over you. It's a sweet spot in his will. You will love it when you're there. You'll be living in his will and growing in your faith. Our father knows best. Search his word to know his will and obey what he reveals to you. It's important that you obey it. Doing this is going to enable you to live in his will and grow in your faith. Even when you don't know the answers to the big stuff. You know, there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books written about the will of God. And they tell you how to seek it, the formulas to follow. Please don't go to them first. Please. Make those your very last resort. Because you have the final authority right here on God's will in your hands every day, all the time. It's God's words from his lips to your ears. Just listen. Please pray with me. Father, we love that you've told us we can seek your will and you will reveal it. Father, make us women that not only seek your will, that we're women that obey your will. Father, that we uh, learn things about you and what you desire for us, and we want to live it out in our lives. And Father, that we would wait well, taking baby steps in your will until you decide that we know, can know the big stuff. Father, help us to be women that love others well and in a way that honors you in all that we do. We love your word and we love your son, and it's his name we pray. Amen.